I have the Sunday afternoon ritual that involves napping and football. And oftentimes, the two can kind of perfectly and magically meet, and that's usually around halftime. Uh, and Megan, my wife, will, will come in, and she'll usually do one of two things. And with the goodness of her heart, if I'm sleeping or if I'm napping, she'll, she'll turn the TV off uh, so I can get a, a deeper nap, or she'll suggest that maybe football's not on the TV, we can go for you know, a nice winter walk. And my response is always the same. So if she turns the TV off, for some reason or somehow I quickly wake up and I fumble for the remote and turn it back on just so I don't miss anything. Or I'll say, maybe we can wait till after the game. Because I've watched the first half and, and my team has built up a bit of momentum here. It wasn't looking good and then there's a little bit of hope and I want to see the second half and see how it, how it all plays out. But unfortunately, I wasn't raised well. Yeah, no, I was raised to cheer for a team called the Detroit Lions who have historically been failures and haven't won a championship since 1957. I'm sure the Leaf fans know my pain. So that's kind of where we're at this morning in our story where we've had this first half, there was a bit of turmoil in in Jonah's life and then there's this little ray of hope. Just a a little bit of a warning for those of us who are wearing a Jonah jersey. I'd suggest at this point taking it off because the second half puts him in a similar Maple Leafs and Lions category of kind of loser. But it's awesome because we get to be once again reminded through this lens of, of constant failure of how good and how holy and how compassionate and how steadfast the love of God really is. So it's kind of nice to actually have a win on Sunday. So last week we did. We looked at Jonah, the seriousness of his sin, and we looked at the correcting, the disciplining, and the restorative love of God. So this week we're going to continue into the story, and we're going to see that even though Jonah's actions were right, even though what what Jonah physically did was right and was what God was calling him to do, his heart was far from it. Jonah did what was required but remained sinful in his heart and wrestled greatly with this rebuke from God. Let's pray. God, thank you again for your word and thank you for this this narrative of Jonah, of, of what he wrestled with and how we will equally wrestle with our sin. God, thank you for showing us a picture of your love. Thank you this morning that we get to sit with our family and look through your word and God, make it clear to us what you want us to see, what you want us to hear, what you want us to learn, and what you want us to be reminded of. Amen. As I said last week, we ended on the first verse of chapter three where God in his goodness goodness gives Jonah kind of a fresh start. So let's go back to to, uh, chapter three. Let's read this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now this time around, we're seeing a bit of a change. We see a servant who is now willing and able to follow the commands of God. But I want to stop here and I want to consider what that command really entails, okay? So it's worth noting that going to Nineveh, it wasn't just an easy request because Nineveh was known 
as one of the most wicked, evil cities. It was an Assyrian city, rampant in its wickedness, known for brutality and, and warring violent ways. It was actually known for inventing numerous tortures for its enemies, and it very likely killed tens of thousands of Israelites and probably people that Jonah himself knew. I mean, it would, it would make sense to any reader being aware of that level of wickedness, their proclivity for tortures, their warring ways that, that maybe that Jonah would have feared this specific request and we could understand and maybe even somewhat justify his decision to run the other way. Don't we do that? Like I know I do that in my life. I, I justify my disobedience in specific times because I mean, I, I don't want to necessarily put the commands and the commissions and the instructions and the wisdom of God at the forefront. And maybe I'll just put it aside for a moment to justify my current behaviors or my actions or, or inactions because in our view, the current climate or the current culture or this specific circumstance doesn't really fit that call. Like, like maybe if the all-knowing, all-seeing, omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe, maybe if he knew my specific circumstances, that maybe he wouldn't be then asking me to love my enemy. Or maybe he wouldn't, maybe he wouldn't really say, you need, to, you need to forgive that many times in a day. Hmm. Maybe understanding Nineveh then and, and the culture allows us to extend a little bit of grace to Jonah under, under the certain circumstances here. However, it doesn't really do justice to Jonah's heart because Jonah at this time was a great prophet. He stood before kings. He's given grave news to nations. No, Jonah didn't have any fear in his heart. The problem was he despised Nineveh. Let's continue on and read more about that. Let's continue on to verse six here. When Jonah... When Jonah's warning reached the city of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the kings and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God let them give up their evil ways and their violence and violence, because who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened right here, right then, before Jonah's eyes, as he walked the city, proclaiming warning, he sees men. Women, children, guards, soldiers, kings get on their knees and weep and mourn because of their evil, wicked ways and call out to God. Chapter 3, verse 4 says, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Look at this. The next line, the next line says, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Jonah was witnessing a revival of one of the most evil, wicked cities of his time. And as he proclaimed God's message as instructed, they responded to the warning. 
They repented and, and they cried out to God and turned from their wicked ways. It's such an incredible story. Jonah is obedient to God in his actions and, and does the work God calls him to do. And there is a great revival in an evil, wicked city, but there still remains something. There's this heart issue. Unbelievable response by Jonah. Let's read chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to go to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God, a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, oh Lord, please just take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let's just pause, pause for a moment. Let's go back. Let's just remember chapter one, Jonah being disobedient in his actions, refusing to do what God called him to do. We see in spite of Jonah's sin, look, look, we see in spite of his sin that God's hand moves an entire ship of sailors, pagan sailors calling out to false idols, bound for hell, living in sin, an entire ship. They see and witness the incredible power of a living God and they turn from their wicked ways and they make sacrifices and vows and they're saved. Incredible. We see, we see a captain run down to the hull of ship, pull up Jonah and say, awake, oh sleeper, and call out to your God. Maybe, maybe he'll have pity on us and maybe we won't perish. And God does. And instead of Jonah celebrating this incredible movement of God, and seeing men's hearts on this ship change, instead of it allowing him to reignite his fire and his call to go to Nineveh, no, you know what he does? He just says, just throw me overboard. I want to die. <laughs> just throw me overboard. I want to die. Now on his second opportunity, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So here at the end of chapter two, Jonah at this point has called out to God. In his suffering, he's repented. In humility, he was thankful to God as he confesses his sins and he proclaims that salvation belongs to the Lord. His heart is stirred towards God. And once again, so quickly, so easily, sin begins to creep back in. Pride, self-righteousness, hate. I mean, it didn't even take long between, between his journey home and his journey to Nineveh you would think the memory of a whale's morning breath would still be fresh in his mind, but, but as he journeys to Nineveh, the words of that prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord, seems to lose its grip on his heart. You see, his actions follow God's instructions, but his heart remains angry with the Lord. He sees God's grace extended to his enemies, and he's exceedingly, exceedingly displeased. He sees a nation of evil, warring, wicked people repenting on their knees, and he's angry. He sees a king in dust and in sackcloth on his knees before God. And he's so wrought with frustration and anger towards God that he wants to be put to death. How unbelievably self-righteous. How bigoted, how spiritually immature, and how detestable. Jonah's angry to see his obedience to God used by God for God's purpose to extend grace to the people that God chooses. 
The first half of the book, we have this kind of obvious blatant sin. We have Jonah living in blatant disobedience. We can kind of call him out. We can correct it. We can see it. But now we're dealing with sin on a different level. We're dealing with sin that's a little more hidden, that maybe is a little more acceptable at times, isn't it? It's a little more difficult to see because on the surface, he's obeying God, but his heart still protests. He thinks he can do a better job than God. He thinks he has a better view of grace than God does. I mean, Jonah, who was just, just praying a page earlier, salvation belongs to the Lord, is now mad that salvation belongs to the Lord. He was full of praise and, and, and thankfulness when he received such incredible grace and mercy and compassion and redirection and restoration from God. This Jonah who had just sinned, who was just tossed from a boat, who suffered near-death drowning, who spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish getting corrected. He calls out for salvation. He's corrected, disciplined, restored because of God's goodness. And now he is angry that God is extending this grace to someone else. Man, praise God that salvation doesn't belong to Jonah. And praise God that salvation doesn't belong to Marshall. Here Jonah cries out in his anger towards God. He actually quotes God from Exodus. He quotes where he's actually describing himself to Moses. Look at this, Exodus 34, verse 6. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's God describing himself. Jonah, in his anger, turns to God and basically repeats that definition of God back to himself as the reason he didn't want to go in the first place. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my home country? Is this not why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, Lord, just take my life from me. Little bit of a drama queen. How many times does this guy want to die? But again, in my self-righteousness, I can read this and easily find myself shaking my head, thinking, what is wrong with this guy? Look at the weakness of this prophet. He's so spiritually immature. He's failing to see how God was clearly moving. He's missing out on a revival in a city. What a sinful, selfish, prideful heart. But the truth is, church and family, I'm gonna tell you about me. The truth is that Jonah's heart isn't far from mine. I can't even count how often in a day I try to withhold or hold God's grace hostage Listen, I have a tendency, and I think we have a tendency, to look at the world around us and describe the God that we can't wait to see come judge the world that disagrees with us, even that disagrees with him. We want, if, if we're honest, we want to see some limits put to God's grace. Now, Jonah is called to extend a warning from God to the people of Nineveh. And he had, he had no problem doing that. In fact, I would say even the first time through, he would have had no problem doing that. The problem wasn't walking with a picket sign and saying you're gonna be overthrown. That wasn't the issue. The issue was Jonah knew God. He knew his heart. He knew how God described himself. He knew God's nature. 
He knew that he was gonna be forgiving and merciful and relenting from disaster, steadfast in his love. So because of his hate for the Ninevites, he didn't want them to get grace. They didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve mercy. They didn't deserve compassion. They didn't deserve a warning. He knew better than God. How many times have I said the same thing? Listen, how many times have you, be honest for a minute, little humility here, how many times have I, have you said the same thing here? Listen, their politics, that lifestyle, their drug habits, whoa, what about those COVID beliefs? Their view on masks, their view on vaccines, their church attendance, their view on homosexuality, their view on abortion, their obvious love of money, their hate and perverse and corrupt and wicked lifestyle, they don't deserve grace. They should get God's wrath. I even caught myself not too long ago saying, come Lord Jesus, come, when I was looking at the sin in the world around me, hoping to see God's wrath come and judge. Come Lord Jesus, come and judge them. That's a wicked heart. They don't deserve God's wrath. They don't, they don't even deserve my time walking alongside them, speaking the truth about God's grace, showing the need for repentance. They'd never even accept it. They're so blind. What about if we went a little bit closer to home? My wife, my husband, after all these years, of all the years of apathy or how they've treated me and ignored me and hurt me, you think I'm gonna start showing them forgiveness? No. You think I'm gonna extend them God's grace? No. My, my siblings and, and their spouses, after what happened last Christmas, how they mocked and went after and attacked and insulted my family or my beliefs or even the word of God? No. My coworkers, I've tried to act Christ. Like they all know I'm a Christian but how they treat me, how they mock and belittle and attack, I'm done. And in the end, they're gonna see who was right. We have, church, I have this incredible ability to sit with, with God's word in hand, going to church be, or, or doing online church services and, and singing and praying loudly and volunteering in ministry and still completely miss the heart of Christ completely miss the reason for his great commission, which is to bring God glory. We're called to be obedient to his word. Listen, our role isn't to decide if and when a revival breaks out, if Nineveh's worthy of a revival or if they're even capable of a revival. It's not, our job is not to plan revivals. It's the Holy Spirit's job to open the eyes of the blind. Our, our call is simply to preach and teach the truth out of love to a world around us that is hurting that is lost, that is bound for an eternity without God in hell. Not to sit around and pretend that we can hold God's grace hostage. Listen, remember the heart of the issue that we're talking about here is the heart. He's followed God's call. A lot of us have followed God's call to do what we're required to do, but our heart is so far from it. He's warned the nations. Let me be clear, we are called to warn the nations of coming judgment. We are called to preach and teach the truth of the gospel. We are called to expose light in the darkness, but for what purpose? What is our heart posture? To prove how right we are, to prove how wrong they are, to expose how, how evil their ways are, or, or to separate how holy and just we are and how corrupt and broken they are, or, or, 
Is it to show how God is a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, that he could save a wretch like me? Not because of anything I could do, not because of anything I've ever done, but because of how good he is. Not only do we want to hold God's grace hostage, but how often have we underestimated God's grace? Story I'm not super proud of, but I'll tell you a story from my life. My wife and I bought a house it's in, in London. Our first house was east of Adelaide. So railroad tracks, east of Adelaide, rough little scene. In fact, our street, two down from us, was a mother and father who were um, habitual drug users, um, I mean, they would sit on the front porch and do it, and they had little kids that would run all day, all night, dirty and half-clothed. They would run into our house. Uh, they would run into our backyard when we had friends over at barbecue or anything, and we had, we had a neighbor three or four down the other side with a big Nazi flag hanging out, and his house was all black, and there was trash everywhere, and he would cuss and, and spit horrible things from his mouth. And at the end of our street, well, actually, the, the entrance of our street, where you would come off the main drag and turn into our street, there was a corner there of old cement, and there was a prostitute there. For two years, I would drive past it, and I would say the majority of the week, it was more common than not to see this, this woman here, this prostitute here, who every time I drove, she would wave me down. She would use disgusting words. She would use disgusting hand signals. She would do everything she could to get my attention, to pull me over so I could purchase some services over and over and over again, and it was infuriating. I mean, I would have friends coming for dinner and she would try to stop them. I would have youth meetings as, with our youth group and, and they, would, they would try to slow us, they would try to slow us down even with some of the students in our car or, or with my wife on a Sunday afternoon with my child in the back. She would wave me down and try to stop me and I was thinking how disgusting, how perverse, how corrupt, how sinful, how gross. For two years, it went on and on and on and then at one of our youth retreats where I was a, a leader and, and our youth pastor did a sermon on Jonah, and it captured my heart and made me think, what have I missed? One Sunday, I pulled over as she was standing there, and I rolled down my window, and she came running up, and right out of her mouth were perverse words, prices, and she leaned in on my window, and I just said, what's your name? And she told me her name. I said, my name's Marshall. And as she talked, I talked over her and just said, I want you to know that God loves you. And then just silence. I said, I want you to know that he hasn't forgot you. He sees every part of you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every sin and loves you. He knows every dark deed that I've ever done. He knows every sin that I've ever committed. And because of his love for me, he, he took that cost and died on the cross and rose again to save me from it. And he was desperate to extend the same offer to you. I sat there and in a few short, weak moments had the ability to, to share the gospel in my broken way to this woman who sat and wept at my car. And I just remember the smell and, and the, honestly, my heart was sinking, the grossness as she leaned in and she just wept and wept and wept. And as my words ended with the gospel, hoping she heard it, hoping she knew, I didn't know, I just asked, could I pray for you? Her shoulders were shaking, her, her mouth was crying, her, her eyes were crying, she couldn't respond, so I just started to pray over a broken prayer. I was so disgusted with myself that day, thinking how often I had missed that. And as she walked away, 
crying. I just said, our house is just down the street. If you ever need a, a meal or if you need a safe place or if you need a place to sleep, let me know. Now, the last time we saw her, never saw her again. She, she, we lived there for a number of years after and I, I worked downtown in, in probably the most populated city where, where prostitutes were and, and I never saw her again and I looked for her often. I never saw her again. Because in my opinion, for those leading two years, there is no way that this woman would want to even hear the truth about God's plan for purity and to love her. I mean, for us, there's no way the woman that's excited to go get her fourth abortion is going to hear from us. There's no way that the doctor who's committed 100 abortions a year is going to hear it. Or the person endlessly uh, with a foul mouth who reeks like whiskey and pot, who swears and cusses at us that we pass every day. There's no way they're going to listen. That, that community is so polar opposite from the way God called us to live. There's no way that they are going to hear about what we have to say. There's no way they're going to listen. So we justify, I justified for years my disobedience to go into the world and preach the good news of Jesus Christ because I know grace better than God knows grace. We build up these barriers that would stop us from even entertaining the idea that sitting with someone, showing someone kindness and love to hear their story, to break bread with a sinner, to invest time and to pour into their lives so that we can share the truth of the gospel, it's not even worth it. Listen, church, I, I will be honest here for a moment that doing this series, speaking on the seriousness of my sin, and being challenged about my heart posture before the Lord has, has taken a very strong toll on my heart. If I'm honest, it's, it's shaken me and awakened me of the deep flaws that I have as a man who claims to follow Christ. Even recently, in this virus-infected, politically volatile world, I have sat, looked at both sides, and I found myself sitting in judgment on one side or another. For, for those who are close to me, for those who are far from me, I found myself determining the judgment that they deserve because of how they act, believe, or think. Even because of the rampant sin in this world, which is evident and obvious, the world around me, I've put up barriers to justify the call of God in my life to preach the gospel even to the Ninevites and to speak to them in love and in truth. And I've placed my preferences my comforts, my personal desires, my fear of man, or my limited wisdom over God's. I've failed to see that, that God's plan may very well be to place me in persecution or opposition so that my response, so church, our response, can represent the heart of Christ so well that those who persecute us would see how much we love them and would want to come to know Christ. They would want to come to know Jesus so he can show them their sin so they can seek repentance and be redeemed and restored. As I contemplate this myself, my question to you, are you holding God's grace hostage to your family, to your children, to your spouses, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your communities? Have you placed limits on God's grace have you underestimated God's grace to, to who would and who, would, who wouldn't listen? If you are, and if you're like me, you are and you have, let's do this together, church. Let's, let's reflect on who God is and who we are not. 
Let's start to take our sin seriously. Let's recognize the seriousness of our sin. And, and that the, the sin not just in our obvious disobedience, but the sin that lies inside of our hearts that is keeping us from the direction God is calling us. Let's remind ourselves that salvation belongs to the Lord. Church, let's pray for humility and wisdom as we, as we pursue the call in our life to tell the whole world about Christ. Will you challenge yourself with me to go to the Ninevites in our lives, excited to extend grace and to share the message of hope to anyone that, that we know a God that is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I want to continue reading here the conversation between Jonah and God. Go with me to verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there and he sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. I just, pause for a second, I just find that such a childish action to go sit. I feel like he was cross-armed just to watch, to see what would happen. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over, his, over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah and he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said again, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for this plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. You did not make it grow, which came into being at night and perished in a night. And should, not, should I not have pity that the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left hand from the right hand and also much cattle? What I love in this is God's response. He's just so sweet and so patient with Jonah. There's a gentleness. And the last time God responded with storms and, and drowning and a, and a whale. But here with just a few questions, he guides his thinking back to the goodness of God. And, and with just the same questions, he guides my thinking back to his holiness and his mercy and his steadfast love. Do you have any right to be angry? And you were sinful and you were disobedient. You weren't worthy of God's grace. And in your repentance, you called to God and you were forgiven, redeemed, and restored. So do you have any right to be angry? Then God provides this sweet life lesson to Jonah. He grows a plant over his head and then removes it. And Jonah is so beyond frustrated. At this point, again, for the third time, he calls for his, his death. And he asked, do you do well to be angry for this planet? And Jonah's like, yes, I do do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And then you just see God's wisdom kind of bring it all home here. See, see you pity the plant for which you didn't labor. You didn't make it grow, which, which came into being overnight and perished in a night. Yet, should I not have pity on Nineveh, the great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left hand from their right and also much cattle. There's just so much gentleness and sweetness in that correction. Are you withholding grace 
in your life? Are you withholding grace to your family, to your spouses, to your children, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to a community that you don't know, to a nation that you don't know, to a nation that is wicked and is evil? Are you withholding your call to love them enough to share with them the truth of God's merciful, loving, compassionate, steadfast love? This isn't about pretending sin doesn't exist. Let me, let me be really clear. It's not pretending sin doesn't exist. It doesn't, it's not offering a hall pass for sin. This is about speaking truth to a world in desperate need. It's about dropping our pride and not letting the sin of others affect how God calls us to love them and to go to them and show them God's love. I've been so humbled by this book and, and awestruck by God's goodness as we finish this book I want to tell you the good news. The good news is that God still moves. I mean, in spite of my sinful heart, in spite of our pride and our self-righteousness, God still moves. His plan for Nineveh wasn't thwarted. His plan for those in your life won't be hindered by our sin. And we can try, but we can't hold back God's grace. We can try, but we can't put limits on God's grace. We can try, but we can't underestimate God's grace because God in his goodness can restore the sinner that turns back to him. No matter how wicked, no matter how lost, no matter how sinful, no matter how broken, no matter how far. Let's just go back to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Honestly, as I was writing this, this is a very difficult message to end because it's not a big giant bang of an ending. It's, it's a very quiet, quiet ending. We don't, we don't know what Jonah did. We don't know what his heart did. We don't know what the next day looked like. We simply see God in his wisdom using three rhetorical questions to question Jonah. Do you have any right to be angry? Do you have any right to be angry at the plant? Can I not show compassion? Hmm. I think I'll end the message the exact same way God ends his conversation with Jonah. Who is it in your life that, that has come after you, that has hurt you, that has attacked you, that has mocked you, that has opposed you, that has caused you to be angry, that has caused you deep pain in your life? Have you withheld grace from them, the same grace that God extended to you have you turned from your call to go and preach the good news? Church, do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. God, as we rest in your word, in the truth of your word, my prayer is that I and, the, and that those, those, us as a church will walk boldly and willingly into Nineveh, that we will walk boldly in truth with a heart that knows your character joyfully sharing your good news of salvation. God, that we would recognize that, that we can't hold back, and hold hostage your grace, that we are called to give freely as you did, that, that we are called to, to teach people about you so they can turn to you and repent of their sin. God, open our eyes to the world around us and remind us that we can't put a limit on your grace. God, stir in our hearts that, that we may be desperate to see the world around us come to know Christ. And remind us that you've called the lost and the sick and the broken and the sinful. That you've called us to go to them to spread your message of hope and restoration 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, remind us that only your spirit can open the eyes of the blind. We are simply called, God, to be faithful to your word. God, thank you for your goodness. In light of the seriousness of our sin, God, this is such a reminder of how good you are, how close you are, how much you care for us and love us and continue to work on us. Amen.